0: Living the Faith Podcast, brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. Restoringthefaith.com
1: Welcome back to another episode of Living the Faith. This is Ben, Joe, and Mike. Today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, and certainly a very important topic uh, for Catholics, and that is Eucharistic miracles. So obviously the Eucharist is at the heart of our faith. It's at the heart of the Mass. Uh, It is part of our life. And the Eucharistic miracles that surround uh, the the Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, have been with us, uh, you know, since the very, very beginning. And these stand as testimonies to the existence of the real presence, a reality which we cannot see. Now, I know we've talked about this a lot, guys, and it's come up in conversation a number of times, um, but maybe we should start this conversation with an explanation of the real presence.
2: Sure, the, the theological term is transubstantiation. Right. Um, this is when during the consecration that the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood of Christ, while maintaining the accidents—that is to say, the uh, uh, visible, uh, tangible, if you will, qualities of bread and wine. Right. So it's a s-
1: substantial change, not an accidental one. Correct. Yep.
2: And it
0: sh- it should be noted. It should be noted that something like three in four Catholics don't even believe in transubstantiation. I mean, the the majority of Catholics sitting in the parish, I mean, if you look around, I mean, three out of four, I mean, probably the listeners of this program are, are the exception, but when you sit in Mass and you look around, the majority of the people who are there with you do not believe in transubstantiation.
1: Okay, I did not know that, but that makes these points even more important. Um, so obviously, we have, this is a divine precept. So let, let's get real basic with this. All right, so first, when Christ was preaching in the synagogue, and this is before the Last Supper, and this is from John six fifty three, The Jews, therefore, strove amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. And I know a lot of people, um, certainly not Catholics or Protestants, say he's speaking there metaphorically. The interesting point then is that later on in that in that same uh, excerpt from the Gospel, it says that was hard to hear, and many of his uh, disciples left him that day. And he turns to to his twelve and say, "Will you two leave me?" And that's when Peter says, "Who? Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life." And so. If there was a moment where the listeners misheard what Christ was saying, uh Christ would have taken an opportunity to say, Oh no, 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 I'm not actually talking about eating my flesh and blood. Huh. no, stay. Uh that you you know, you misheard me, um, you misunderstood. So no, there was no correction that was given, and of course, this is further supported by the Last Supper and the words themselves that were said there.
0: And this was hard, this was especially hard for the Levitical ears of the listeners to hear this commandment, because the the book of the, the laws of Leviticus specifically forbade The eating of human flesh, cannibalism, was is outlawed in the Old Law, and it sounded very much like what our Lord was saying was, "You're going to have to eat my body." I mean, can you imagine if you were one of the apostles and you and you heard, you know, you experienced John six, right, and then you and then you follow our Lord around for like three more years, and the whole time you're thinking to yourself, like, at some point I got to eat this guy. You know, I mean, like he—he very clearly wasn't speaking metaphorically, because to your point, Ben, he would have been compelled morally to explain what he meant if he was in fact speaking metaphorically. Exactly. When the when the crowd of five thousand that he had just fed had dwindled down to just the twelve, I mean, this was a pretty, pretty, pretty uh, obvious statement that he says. Right? It's very severe words. To the, to, the, to the ears, and it was so harsh that yep. everybody left him. Those people that were yep. just moments ago wanting to crown him king, they were all gone.
1: Exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, so, obviously, this was then solidified with the institution of the Blessed Sacrament from our Lord. So, the reason we're talking about this is because of the importance, because of the integral nature of the real presence to Catholicism to what we believe. And this is, of course, coming from Christ himself when he was on earth. So in the institution of the Blessed Sacrament, uh, this is my blood of the New Testament, which shall be said for many. Um, This is my body. Uh, These are the words spoken by Christ and are now, of course, in the Mass and repeated by priests as Altar Christus during the consecration when the transubstantiation takes place. So a Divine Priestess of the Church uh, we're talking about that moment when the bread and wine become the body and blood of our Lord, but retain the accidents of bread and wine, but substantially have changed. So here's an, and, inter-
2: here's an interesting point. I was having an argument uh, with a Protestant about transubstantiation, specifically, right? Okay. And will uh, be good. The the words as we've as we've coded them, right? You you can go down this little pathway of trying to make uh, an argument that Christ was speaking metaphorically in all three of these quotes. Um, But he said, so this is absolutely ridiculous that you believe in transubstantiation, that bread and wine is specifically being turned into the actual body and blood of Christ. And this particular individual, he's very intelligent and he uh, does a a lot of Bible study. He's one of like the main guys at his church, that actually looks at the original languages and breaks these things down. And I said, all right, let's just hold on for a second to say that the Catholic Church is not turning this bread and wine into the flesh and blood of Christ. Let's just hold that for just one moment. Do you believe that the original act that Christ made of turning his body and uh, I'm sorry, turning the the bread and the wine into his body and blood was actually his body and blood and not metaphorical. And he went completely silent. And then he spoke up after about, I, it felt like forever, but it was probably, you know, 10, 15 seconds of silence. And he said, well, that is what the words say. And the words in the Greek are very, very clear. There is no mistaking it is very specific it is not metaphorical and he said i i have to agree that at least at the last supper that christ did in fact change the body the, the bread and wine into his body and blood and so his next argument right is really about the me- in memory of me that well only christ can do that but it is actually very clear that this is what was said, that this is a precept, and this is what we should be believing as Catholics.
0: Well, even the words used in John 6 are pretty specific. I mean, he, our Lord says specifically, unless you chew my flesh, chew, like we in, 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 in English, we, we don't say, you know, chew chew the flesh, but that's a pretty, that's a pretty um, graphic and, and illustrative and, and descriptive word there. Unless you chew my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He said it three times. And and the and the offering of the offering of bread and wine, of course, comes from the priesthood of Melchizedek, the original priest in the Bible, um, all the way back in one of the earlier chapters of Genesis. Melchizedek is a is, is a priest who offers bread and wine to God, and that offering is pleasing to God. It was the Levitican priesthood that which was which was destroyed, and and our Lord is, was prefigured, and the Eucharist was prefigured. By this, this, this priesthood of Melchizedek, which was not destroyed, but perfected in, on Maundy Thursday.
1: And Christ even makes that distinction. He says, This is not the bread that your fathers ate and died. And I'm sure, to Jewish ears, I mean, this was this was complete, you know, heresy to them. Um, but one cannot say the distinction wasn't made over and over again, and in many different places. So we have the real presence. We have this as a divine precept that has been given to us by Christ. It is a tenet of our faith. Um, it is the heart of the Mass. It is the heart of the priesthood. It is the heart of Catholics everywhere. And one beautiful example, I think, of the mercy of God is that he's given us miracles that are centered around this real presence. And these are the Eucharistic miracles, the stories that have been passed down, that have been documented, and that have been occurring since um, the first Mass was offered. And we have them, and they've cropped up through the history of time. Uh, You know, there are some that are over a thousand years old. There are some that are only a few years old. These are still happening. This is ongoing. So the first point, um, when it comes to Eucharistic miracles, unfortunately... The first point is the reason that they occur is almost always because of doubt of the real presence or because of blasphemy. So something sacrilegious being done to the host, uh, either through uh, lack of attention or disrespect or outright sacrilege, Uh, someone's trying to desecrate a host. And so out of the abuse, whether it was intentionally for a lack of uh, belief in the real presence or if it was um, actually an, an intent to desecrate, this is what initiates... Um, the Eucharistic miracle.
0: One of the earliest miracles that we have uh, actually is in, in the heart of Italy um, in the 8th uh, century. And there was a priest who doubted, as you said, Ben, doubted the real presence of Christ in the host. And it turns out that the host immediately upon this, this doubt in the mind of the, of the priest turns to flesh and it begins to bleed. And the priest, I mean, what does he do? He runs. He runs away. He flees. And, he, and he, he knows what he had done. And so he says to himself, well, I'm in Rome, and I need to offer my confession. I might as well go straight to the Pope. And so he goes to the Pope of Rome and confesses his sin uh, of doubt and blasphemy against um, the, the Holy Eucharist. And that host has been preserved for centuries. In fact, it was even as, as late as the 1970s, in which scientific and uh, biological tests were done on that host, and it was confirmed in the early 70s that it was not only human flesh, but but tissue of the heart, cardiac tissue.
1: Oh my gosh! So amazing. And the so and amazing. the blood
0: and the blood in this host, in this case, it, you know, it's not coagulated blood. You know, it's not when 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 blood dries um, and our listeners who have you know, experienced tragedy or been to a crime scene or whatever, you know that, you know, you know that old blood has a certain look to it. This does not have the look or or character of old blood. It's fresh.
1: Right. And this is still on display uh, to this day. This is not on display, but it's, it's there for reverence uh, to this day. It's amazing. Um, there was another one, and I remember actually uh, this was either a story my mom told me or my dad, uh, but this took place in Santarum, Portugal, and this was in the 1200s. Um, there was a woman who suspected her husband of cheating on her, and so uh, what did she do? Well, of course, she went to a sorceress and sought the advice of a sorceress about her husband and asked for um, a consecrated host as the only form of payment, and to... Uh, even. <laughs> shockingly, this woman uh, goes to the church, uh, attends mass, walks up the communion rail, receives communion, turns around, and then as she's hastily exiting the church, pulls the host from her mouth, wraps it in the veil that she was wearing, and before she can leave the church, it starts to bleed. And um, this woman, of course, in full panic, uh, having done already what she has done and already, uh, I'm, I'm sure, ashamed of what she's done, doesn't take it to the priest. Takes it home, uh, puts it in the trunk, her clothing trunk of her room, but there is so much blood, she begins to panic, and she takes it outside and sticks it in the niche of a tree. And um, you have to ask yourself what what she was thinking, but um, as soon as she did this, and obviously with the intent to abandon it there... Uh, and to get it out of sight and out of mind, the host began to miraculously uh, radiate light. And it was so blindingly bright that she knew that this could not be hidden and that everyone would know, and immediately went and sought the priest. The priest came and retrieved the host and then brought it back to the church wherein it was shrined. The amazing thing that was happening in the meantime, though, is that animals had begun to gather on their knees outside of this location. So when the priest arrived, there were farm animals who were on their knees far away from the host that he passed to get there and bring it back to the church. But this too is, is one of those um, Yugoslav miracles that is still on, uh, exposed for public veneration in the, in, in the church. And the name of that church in Portugal is the Holy Miracle in, in, in reverence of that. Of that event wow how wow. can
0: you how can you hear a story like that and and disbelieve you know it's like our Lord gives us more overly uh, abundant evidence of his real presence in the Eucharist I mean you 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 almost have to employ a willful ignorance to ignore the overwhelming evidence in support of his real presence
1: yeah, and I mean, obviously, God is giving us these miracles for a reason. He know that it, He knows that it it's a test of faith. It's not an obligation of His. You know, He gave us this precept. We choose to believe it based on faith from Him, from the from Christ, and uh, still, in His mercy, He decided to give us this miracle. And uh, yeah, to to still deny the real presence, even in light of these uh, uh, absolutely awe inspiring miracles, uh, it's terrible. Uh, it, it's it defies reason. Um, these things have been tested, uh, multiple, uh, uh, examples of Eucharist miracles have taken place. Multiple tests have been taken of these hosts and they always come back with the same blood type, which is a B and, um, that's the universal, the, blood. Uh, that's
0: the universal donor type, right? A B. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which is, which is another beautiful aspect. A lot of people, yeah. a lot
0: of people, you know, you, you got, you got whatever, O plus, O minus, uh, various blood types and you can only receive certain blood types but a, the ab blood type is the type of blood that anybody can receive It's a universal donor it's it's made for everybody
1: right and, and not only is this found together between all of the examples that have uh, been tested of the yogus miracles this is the same blood type that is found on the shroud as well so it, yeah it's Are it's, you it's truly I astounding i that
2: yeah well i mean yep. of course it makes sense and i'm not right. questioning yeah, sure. the miracle but i mean wow yeah. that's That's amazing that that can be still traced and whatnot. We can go to another, uh, we'll go take a third final example of one that did not end as well, shall we say. Um, There was a a lay monk who, after denouncing the real presence, actually dies as the host is in the priest's hands, begins to bleed. Um, So, right, he, he denounces the real present, dies, and the host begins to bleed. The soul of the monk in a painting uh, that was done by Stefano di Giovanni di Consolo. Uh, he depicts the soul of this monk being taken away by demons into hell, as his habit turns to solid black, and the monastic community is just watching in terror. I
1: have seen that painting; it is terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Yeah. yeah. So this is this is an. Ex- I'm so glad you brought this up because this is an example of someone who dies just he's about to receive so he's about to receive in a state of denial and before he has the chance to do that he's taken and yeah and that painting it's 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 incredibly uh it's it's not disturbing because it's well it is it is disturbing because you can see the demons pulling his soul through his mouth and taking him away and like yeah like you said his habit is literally turning from white to jet black and everyone in the room is recalling in horror and of course the priest is now holding a bloody host
2: yeah Yeah. well and and it's so relevant for today especially right um you know going back to what we were saying before you know the the numbers right now are three out of four catholics do not believe in the true presence and just how can this be right but this, this is this is the statistics that that uh, have been stated, right? Um, e- even if it was half, it would be absolutely terrifying. But yep. we have to remember, yep. especially when we take our take communion, that we need to pray for uh, those souls that don't believe that that could be even in our very own church that like this monk for the sake of um, human respect, right? To not be called out for not you know, believing or anything like this and going ahead and taking the blessed sacrament while in their minds denying that God truly exists in, under these species of bread and wine. We need to really take note of that and make reparation for that doubt.
1: So that, that's an excellent point, and it and it brings up. Well, it reminds me of something that happened. Um, I used to drive a priest on his Sunday route, and so he would he would say mass in one church and then need to be driven to another church. And we went there, and it was a low mass, and I was serving. I was one of the altar boys, and the other altar boy was holding the patent for Holy Communion. And unfortunately, um, you know, it, it happens from time to time that there were a number of hosts stuck together. It was a high humidity day. And uh, two hosts set together. The priest lifted it out of the chalice. And the hosts uh, were set together in midair and then fell and then bounced off of the patent. And there were multiple hosts. And it was a terrible scenario. And two of the hosts fell on the ground. And um, they did have a drop cloth on the communion rail, which I think is a beautiful tradition um, to show out of respect for the of sacrament. So there was that. Um, but a lot of people, and I wasn't aware until this time, of the ritual that's involved in the cleansing that takes place after a host has fallen on the floor, and um, it really has to do with the the accidental quality of the accidents that exist in the holy species in in the body and blood of Christ in the bread and wine. And it's interesting because so obviously we can only see the accidents of the real presence. We only see the bread. We only see the wine, and uh, so. The rule is that when that happens, so let's say a host drops or heaven forbid the chalice tips over and there's wine that's been spilled on the linens, you have to keep rinsing those linens with clean water until no discernible particle or no presence of alcohol is left, because that's how you can determine that the sacred species is gone because the accidents are no longer present. So if there's any crumbs, they have to be completely dissolved. If there's any wine, it has to be completely dissolved in a very, very large amount of water. And it's it's a process that takes almost 20 to to 35 minutes to do these many rinses. And I I was talking to the priest at the time that, you know, how this is terrible when this happens. And um, he was saying every single time that I've seen this happen, and I've seen it a number of times, the devotion to the Blessed Sacrament increases in these parishes because people see the respect that is given by the part of the priest. And this priest was was very, very good at doing this and, and, and kind of the accompanying ritual that takes place. So there's a purificator that's placed on the space where the hosts have fallen after the hosts are retrieved. And then there is a genuflection that is made to that spot after the purificator has been placed down. Um, but yeah, no, I was, I was, I was very much moved by the respect that was given and the ritual that was in place. And I thought it was an excellent point that it actually instills greater devotion when people see the respect that I is given. I think that's an sure. interesting,
0: I think that's an interesting point on, uh, the, almost the, the opposite of what you would expect to happen, happen. The, the growth and reverence, uh, namely when, when the species is properly, uh, taken care of. I was out on the church, um, uh, I was in a church on the West coast and this was a, this was uh caretaken by a religious order. Um, and really the opposite happened. Um, there, even though there were altar servers and you know, they were, they were on guard, a, uh, a host unfortunately hit the floor and it happened on the other side of the altar of, of the kneeler. And you know, the people around us, nobody wanted to reach in and, and grab our Lord. Right. Obviously, and so we waited for the priest to come back to that side of the altar and pointed out that our lord was on the ground and I mean shockingly this priest just knelt down and picked him up and consumed him and kept moving on distributing communion I mean and and there was no um there was there was there was no s-
2: Response. Right. I mean, there, it, it, was, yeah, it was so
0: shocking. I, I don't even have the words now as I look back on that story in comparison to your story, Ben. And, and when you see that happen, how can you be surprised that three and four Catholics don't have yeah. a deep and abiding faith in yeah. the real presence of our Lord if it's just treated like a piece of bread that can be discarded at will?
2: Or, or his yeah. blood for that matter. I was at I used to serve mass uh, when I was younger at this uh, parish in uh, Arkansas. and um, I walked back. I was uh, preparing for a, a mass, you know setting the altar, etc. and I walked into the back of the sacristy and there were multiple chalices with leftover blood of Christ that they were using for a ceremony, a communion service. And there were damp purificators that also had blood on it as well, and it was just strewn over this counter. And I ran back to the the back of the church to tell the uh, priest, and he just said, oh, yeah, no, so-and-so hasn't cleaned that up yet. (laughs) Uh, what? <laughs> and I was cleaned that up yet? <laughs> that's that's a, that's a reflection
0: of faith right there, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Most of you, most of the listeners who are listening to this podcast, have seen the Passion of the Christ. Okay, you want to talk about that as our? If you want to refer to that as Our Lady on her hands and knees with our uh, with Mary Magdalene right. wiping up Our Lord's blood that is all over the place. Right. With white linens, with tears in their eyes, with shock and, and and terror at what has just occurred, and oh yes, you know so and so hasn't cleaned that up
0: yet. It, it it reminds you of of and this is this is an interesting point here. Um, when you're aware of these Eucharistic miracles, when you are um, meditating upon the Passion of Our Lord, and 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 aware of. Um you know, the beautiful imagery that Mel Gibson gave us with with Our Lady on her knees mopping up the blood of our Lord. Think about the, the post-communion prayer, one of my favorites from St. Thomas Aquinas. He says, With your precious body and blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that this Holy Communion may not be for me my judgment and condemnation, but that it would be my pardon and my salvation. I mean, it, it harkens back to what St. Paul warns us about that many of you have died because you have received our Lord, you have received Holy Communion outside of the state of grace. And so proper disposition for Mass and for receiving Communion, I mean, if, if you struggle with, with disposing yourself mentally, think t- about these Eucharistic miracles and focus on the fact that it is real in, your, in, in, in objective reality. Under the auspices the the accidental auspices of bread and wine and what a mercy that that is can you imagine if every single mass was a Eucharistic miracle and we were to receive cardiac tissue I mean that would be a pretty difficult thing for us to do we as fallen creatures I mean that would be I mean it would be hard to
2: hmm oh and a, a good example of this about the, the fervor of which we should believe this. There was a story of St. Louis IX uh, when he was um, at the Saint-Chapelle, which was, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapel in, uh, in Paris that was uh, St. Louis IX's personal chapel. And uh, so one of his servants came running in the middle of the night, running to him saying, you've got to come right now there is a Eucharistic miracle that is taking place. Christ, in the form of the Christ child, is walking on the altar. And St. Louis the Ninth is quoted as turning back over in his bed and saying, I already believe in the Eucharist. I don't need a Eucharistic miracle for me to believe. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's intense, right? That's belief. Oh, I mean, wow. I
0: probably still would have shown yeah. up to to take it in
2: yeah well
1: um i'm not like, saying he actually tonight. show up later did he say that and then like kind of like five like, minutes later was, like you know what no
2: <laughs> like, you're like- the, the, the whole the whole point right of the of the story is the, these things right they they these are recorded these these miracles or whatnot of right? course and yeah, yeah and they are very specific What saint louis the ninth was such a holy holy monarch and uh there's several miracles that took place during his lifetime. I mean, this man brought back on by foot to uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame in, in um, Chart um, the crown of thorns from the Holy Land. So, I mean, he was extremely, extremely holy. And even that, right, is a is a proof and also an example to the level that we should believe. In the Holy Eucharist,
1: yeah, and it's true too that didn't he bring back the mantle of Our Lady to Chart, and then the crown of thorns to Saint Chapelle?
2: Uh, you might be right about that. He did. I know he brought back the crown of thorns, and he definitely uh, brought back the the veil as well. I was under the impression that it was a different cathedral, but yes, I think that you might be right.
0: I think it's I think it's interesting that a lot of Protestants who clearly don't believe in um, transubstantiation. At best, you've got the Lutheran and Anglicans who believe in consubstantiation, which is just a, a a lesser form of transubstantiation, not even worth mentioning. But most Protestants, by and large today, the vast majority, uh, it, to the extent that they even have a, quote-unquote, communion service, which happens at very irregular intervals and is meant to represent um you know some kind of emotional event whereby they are thinking about the last supper you know solemnly or whatever they all tend to you know, subscribe to sola fide and sola scriptura and they and they and they try to use scripture to to lambast the catholic church and and to disprove all of these things and yet it is so clearly present in scripture that that uh, the eucharist was not only foretold in the old testament but fulfilled beautifully and and given as such a staunch and solemn and serious message from our lord that he didn't really care if people didn't want to listen to the lesson it's like i it doesn't matter to me if you if you if you disbelieve me i am telling you that this is how it's going to be and if you don't get on board then you have no life in you. I mean, it's it's such an irony to me that Protestants attempt to use in, you know, living in their heresies, they attempt to use Scripture against Catholics when when <laughs> Scripture is clearly on our side on this one.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it, it always shocks me. It it, uh, it it dumbfounds me. But yeah, that, that, that's where we're at today. Um, w- one final point that I wanted to use to wrap up uh, in this conversation in particular is that um, I think one of the first stories that I was told by it was in that that story was of the Eucharistic miracles either my mom or my dad but it has stayed with me for my entire life and it certainly is wrapped up in uh, you know my understanding of the uh, of the Eucharistic miracles that have taken place and of course of the real presence but this is definitely something and we've talked about this in past episodes in past podcasts that needs to be passed on. These are the stories that we give to our children. These are the stories that make up our family story. Uh, These are the, the, the truths of the faith that keep the faith going and that support the principles of the faith from generation to generation.